Hi, this is Anthony, and you're listening to For the Love of Sophia, a philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. We're back again. Back for one more. And this time we have a the lovely Claire Kelly on as our third. What an introduction. Happy to be here. <laughs> nice guest to have, right? So this should be fun. Our first time having someone on. I think it'll be good. Um, yeah. And today we're going to talk about language. Yes, it's going to be an interesting um, talk, I say, because we I'm assuming we're going to see this from at least two different perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the philosopher perspective, and I, I think he, me and you might have a different perspectives on this as well, mm-hmm. I think. Probably, and then... Yeah, so, I mean, I have some knowledge of philosophy, but uh, primarily what I do is teach writing. Um, mm-hmm. And as far as, like, what I studied in school, I have uh, my BA in literature, and then I did... Uh, my graduate degree in rhetoric. So uh, I guess That's, I should be more focused on language, maybe, or at least <laughs> focused on language in a different way than you guys are. Chances are you're more qualified than us to talk about this. I, I don't want to make any promises <laughs> like that, but uh, <laughs> we'll see where it goes. That's good. But so. like this, the starting point is always maybe is if we just ask this fundamental question, uh, what is language? What comes to mind first? Yeah, and um, and like we always do, I think it's easier to say what this thing is not, and in this case is what is what this thing is not just. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning that language, I think there's more to language but what the average person would think of, right? Usually, I remember in grad school when I was taking philosophy of language for the first time, uh, my professor uh, asked, "Well, you know, uh, what do we do with language? What is this language thing?" and the common answer was, well, language, what it does is it helps us communicating, right? It's the means, it's the tool that we have to communicate. And I learned after a couple of years of studying this, there's much more to it, uh, probably. It seems to be like, it seems to be connected to our uh, form of life in a much more, um, what can we say, fundamental way than just as a vessel of communication. Mm-hmm. And even communication itself is like, not a small thing, right? Because yeah. if you're talking about communication, you have to bring in the concept of minds. Yeah, and well, sort of, well, maybe. One thing, yeah, <laughs> one thing I was thinking was, uh, you know that language is more than communication because we draw the line and we say human beings have language, but other animals, mm. while, while they do communicate, um, don't, <laughs> right? That's true. Um, and I mean, you might, you probably have people who would argue that uh, you know, the, the sounds and signals that different animals send back and forth are a kind of language, but I think usually that's a line that we draw, that it's a maybe, right? Like a human uh, thing, it's a use of words hmm. uh, rather than... Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the, the, the biggest differences. We are allegedly the only animal that uses language, while there are plenty of animals that communicate. I was looking 
I was watching a documentary the other day with my daughter, looking at those uh, pretty dogs, those, those chipmunks, so to speak, that that communicate with each other, uh, you know, pretty sophisticatedly, right? They can tell each other if there is danger coming from the air, if there is danger that's slithering, if it's somebody walking, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, so it is uh, a more or less complex way of communicating stuff, but I will not call that thing a language. Why? Right? <laughs> what, what's uh, the what's missing, right? Why aren't? Uh, yes, and that's. I guess that's the question. I, I'm assuming. But no, I think and with. so, if you if you're looking at it as like okay, some of the lower animals have this kind of communication. Uh, that means okay. Now there's different modes of communication, and maybe language is one specific mode, or maybe it's like the greatest on a scale of modes or something like that. So it's like okay, maybe there's some kind of difference in scale, if not kind, between the kind of non-linguistic communication that the lower animals utilize, and then the linguistic communication that humans utilize. And the reason I was saying it had something to do with uh, connection of minds is because there seems to be some relation to consciousness because language undoubtedly affects the way that like you think that you encounter reality and I think this is why when we see these experiments where like we train bonobos to use a, a set amount of symbols it's always like whoa this is crazy because it shows that they're engaged in some higher level of thinking that we that we didn't think they were engaged in. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm a little bit skeptical about and this. I knew it. <laughs> I am because um, I'm thinking on the fact that we have machine language and machine communications, right? And those seems to be pretty sophisticated sometimes and amazing. But I, for, I don't think that there is a mind there. True. I think it's possible to have this, and or maybe they act like. They have a language and it's no language, which this is the other issue, right? How do we know that somebody is actually, how do you know that I'm using a language rather than just parroting words? Oh, that's mm. the Chinese room. Yeah, it is. Right? So the idea is you yeah. have this, uh, this guy in a room and he doesn't speak Chinese at all. And he's being fed these Chinese phrases through a little slit in the door. And he looks at them and he's like, I have no idea what they say. But he has a book in front of him that tells him like, if you get this set of symbols, output this other set of symbols. So he's just following instructions. And so mm -hmm. he looks at whatever the person slid in the door, writes something back, which he has no idea what it means, slips it out the door. The person, the native speaker on the outside, reads it and thinks, ah, okay, the person in this room speaks Chinese. When in yes. actuality, we know that's not the case. And so already we seem to think there's this distinction between speaking a language or comprehending a language versus uh, a series of inputs and outputs. So, so those computer things like wouldn't even be language. Maybe we should specify the conversation to say we mean like the human thing that's happening, right? And, and I think that would be a great example of a difference that we can have between communication and language, right? Communicating can be just inputting and outputting symbols, while instead language seems to, uh, to add something more to it. Or, uh, and the other thing that I, that I was thinking while we were talking about, I think that another difference that we need to make is between language with capital L, so to speak, and what we call natural languages, right? English, mm. Spanish, Italian. Are these things, is, is it possible to make this difference? 
or is it not? I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, clearly, clearly they have something in common, right? If we're uh, grouping them together at all. Um, and I mean, there's the obvious differences in that, like, you can't understand a language that you can't understand. Um, and yet, yet there's degrees to it because in terms of translation from one to the other, um, like what, what, how do you even know when the translation from one to mm. the other is accurate? Um, and you, you often hear like, and I guess maybe you could speak on this more as somebody who speaks more than one language, but, um, I've heard people say that even like, uh, your headspace or your way of thinking of things could be different depending on the language you're, um, thinking in or the language that you're native to. Um, I think there's something to that, yes. Yeah. So you're the expert then, because you live in no. two headspaces. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, no, it's funny because, you know, I always say that the moment I, I knew, I I kind of mastered sort, sort of English a little bit more was when I didn't have to translate things in my head mm -hmm. anymore, right? Mm -hmm. When they become natural at some point. And that's when you. That's why I don't master German or anything like that, because I still need a lot of work with that. And to, to uh, translate that into the language we were using before, no pun intended, you're mm -hmm. saying you really knew how to speak English when you stopped viewing it as a series of inputs and outputs. So yes, exactly. When it became a language, right? So when you stopped became... being the English room and then became yes. the English person <laughs> or something. Exactly. But I wonder if if what I'm talking about is just... It's just um, another way of saying that I got used to the English to the English language, right? Mm. If in reality we're still doing the same thing, but we're doing it so fast that we have no trace of it uh, in front of our eyes, so to speak. Because I'm thinking of the way children learn to speak, and it is kind of like that. With trial and error, they just use words; they have no idea what they mean. They think that they sound appropriate in that specific context, and they use it. And then when you ask them what you know what that means? They'll be like, no. Mm. Hmm. I, well, I was thinking of children before when we were talking about inputs and outputs. Uh, because, I mean, one way of thinking about kids learning to use language is that they are just parroting. And there's a lot of that. But there's also, uh, like, creative manipulation happening on their end. So they're not just repeating what they hear you say in the same exact way every time. Um, you can hear them playing with grammar and sort of like testing the waters. So there does seem to be something internal. And I mean, we know kids are people, right? But maybe that's why. But um, <laughs> there is some, some kind of internal processing that they're going through. Yeah, um, and that reminds me. So I've been reading this Pinker book lately. Uh, what is it called? The, the, the Stuff, stuff of, of thought. thought. Like not intentionally. I just happened to be reading it. <laughs> and he talked about this thing that Claire's talking about where it's like, you know, the theory that children just parrot their parents doesn't seem to be correct because they'll say things that they couldn't have heard. And so yeah. what it seems like is they have some kind of almost innate set of rules that that are running in the background that are allowing them to create, to do something new. Uh, yes, this was Chomsky's yeah. ideas in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's called generative language, uh, grammar. It's, it's at the end, it's the whole idea of creativity that's there, that you, we have this universal grammar in our head with different, it's like a switchboard with switches to get activated or deactivated, depending on the language that you speak, right? And there is a creative act uh, that comes from the learners, so to speak, from the child. And we're talking about mother language, right? Mm. Um, 
So that's that's what you need to do, and it, it works that way, probably. At least that's what Chomsky said. Chomsky uh, used to say that that uh, uh, the behaviorists, from the linguistic perspective, they were wrong because again, children do say stuff that I've never heard, and they they are creative, and that creativity it's what Chomsky would describe as human nature. Uh, his idea that language is what makes us humans, actually. Mm. That is the aspect that makes us not just different, but makes us who we are, mm. so to speak. And it's emblematic because this language, at the end of the day, for him means creativity. Mm. And being creative is what makes us, which makes him not different, not that much different than Marx, really, right? Mm. Uh, this creativity, the fact that we need to make things, in this case, to do my usual thing, uh, I'll display oh, quotes. <laughs> uh, make, making things with words, right? Mm. In this case, he thinks that we are making stuff. Okay, I was thinking uh, of uh, Berg's song, not to, you know, pour <laughs> salt into our wound of having that that reading group. But you know, creation is this fundamental element of being human, and if language pl- plays an integral part in creation, then all the more reason to be like, well, what is it? And so you mm-hmm. you brought up before, like, okay we're not talking about any specific language and the Socratic way of talking about this would be, all right, well, like what is the form of language, right? What, what is the thing that makes all language language or what is languageness? And maybe that's mm-hmm. a way of getting more specific. Sorry? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any, any clues, any ideas there? <sighs> that's a big one. Well, clear. So to start with like a simple or not a simple aspect, but an aspect that probably we can agree on. Um, it has to be a, a shared system, mm. right? So language is a social thing. Um, you need multiple people that are acknowledging some sort of shared usage or at least loose definitions um, so that they have those shared references. When you say something, it's recognized in relation to the other things you could have said. So it's inherently social, right? That's Wittgenstein. There's no private languages. Yeah, I, I was about to say. So the idea is there's no, if there is a private language, it's not really a language. Hmm. It's an idiosyncratic set of whatever. Which, which then that, means that if language has a connection to thought, which I believe it does, and I think we all do, maybe we just disagree about the extent, but it means that it's not only a con- connection to individual thought, it's a connection to mm. collective thought, right? Oh, well, we're, we're assuming that there is such thing as collective mm. thought now? What's going on? You just Intersub- intersubjective. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Yes, that's what no, I mean by that. Not that's like, a, yeah, we're like cogs in a machine <laughs> or something like that. I was thinking like uh, those medieval um, Arabic guys like Averroe or Avicenna that were saying that it was this general mm. intellect, the general thought, not, not that, that. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's too spooky. <laughs> yeah. This, so you say that if language, I think that what we're saying is if language exists, exists into this intersubjective space that mm-hmm. we all uh, inhabit somehow, right? And what's, but in, in this case, it exists in that place. And what's the, what does he do? What's the function of it, right? Because maybe through the function, we can get to what it is. Because if it's not just, commu- if it's not just input and output, what is that then? So uh, before, uh, when you were saying that, uh, who was it that said language is creation? It's kind of like the primary thing that uh, makes us Chomsky, human, yeah. right? That was Chomsky. Um, so, I mean, that's 
that's largely something that's drawn me to why I studied language and it's something that we will fight and discuss and whatever about um because I, I remember like reading my first bits of philosophy and being like this is so fascinating this is so fascinating and after a while you know it gets um forgive me sometimes kind of dry and isolated there from the world uh uh-huh. and the more I got into rhetoric and the linguistic side of things um I, I just felt like it was it was everything it was uh, you know, like I can think whatever I'm thinking, but until I share that with someone else, um, it's it's just in my head, right? So language is like our connection to the world and our connection to each other. And it's not just that, it's often our way of even coming to the idea in the first place, whether you're talking through it in your head or you're writing through it or you're speaking through it with someone else. Um, it seems to be that are really like the thing that takes our internal world and and makes it have any kind of relevance in our external world. You know, I'll go one step further and I will say that language is the thing that makes our internal world. Without language, there is no thought. So it's the other way around. Anthony is already disagreeing. He's going like, no, no, no. I was thinking about this. So I was (laughs) anticipating this. I was washing dishes the other day. (laughs) I find myself washing dishes and always just like thinking. And I was like, you know, He's going to say that when we have this conversation, because I remember it's come up before. And, and I think so the agreement is uh, language and thought are heavily connected. The disagreement okay. is you not only say they're heavily connected, you almost start to say they're synonymous. Or that one, would, or that right? I would say that there's only one. Yeah. Which is language. Which is so interesting. Um so before we get into so, the difference, and, and go, go I was just going to say, go maybe let's focus on the similarities first. And so okay. to build on what Claire was saying, there's this idea that language is what orders the internal world um, and allows you to have access to certain things. And actually, I was reading that, that article you sent to me. Who was the guy that uh, wrote it? Which, which the one? Guy, his I name was like Garfinkel. The literacy? Yeah. yeah. The, liter- mm-hmm. uh, the loss of deep literacy or whatever, he was talking about yes. how uh, language in some sense can cause the the self, like the inner agent, because it's like you have these quiet moments where you're playing with semantics in this metaphorical space that you wouldn't have without mm-hmm. that kind of language. But this also, I think we're getting into a distinction, and me and Claire were talking about this earlier, between uh, oral and written language. So maybe we shouldn't like treat okay. those as synonymous. Maybe we should talk about the, the differences between the, those first. Yeah, even the, when you were just talking about creating an individual, um, I think that's more of a marker of written language. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because oral language is even even more obviously embedded in interaction and more than one person, whereas a, an, an anonymous author could write something down and just walk away from it, and suddenly this text... But then, paradoxically, even though that text is, like, isolated, when it loses the writer, it also becomes this shared hmm. thing. Oh, God. Uh. Yes, it's, it's, it's too reciprocal. I know it's, like, paradoxical. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I was about to say, the written language even more, it needs others. Otherwise, yeah. it's just signs on a paper. This yeah, so it, it may be this weird thing where you say, okay, it requires others. However... 
it also strengthens the inner agent. So at, at, at once it, it does this individuating and also this intersubjectivizing. I'm, I'm suspecting that you would disagree less with me uh, the more we go over, you know, through this. Maybe thing. on a good because, day. Because, <laughs> because I think that um, at the end of the day, what I'm saying is not that crazy. I'm thinking that language is the thing that makes you in a certain sense, right? I dare anybody to show me a thought that is not embedded in language, right? And I don't understand why we usually go from thought to language and we don't think that maybe it's the other way around. In order to shape those things, you need words to do that. Mm. Can, I, can I push back a little bit? Sure, of course. So I think what you're saying is true, but it's also a little mm -hmm. circular, right? Because like to show someone an idea, you need language. So like, of course, by definition, you can't show something. Of with course. It. And this is the problem of mind in general, right? It's like we're all have this private access to our insides and like, I can't convey that to you, but we then have but, to ask like, is it real? Right. Which is something I think you're interested no, in. No, but I, I, and I think it's what I'm asking though, is not so much to tell me, but to do a little bit of, you know, self analysis there and think in your head. Right. And when you're doing that, you're using words to understand yourself. I don't think there's anything. There's not another form. Hmm inside your head that's not this is that thing words. that remember a few months ago clay we were at dan's house and like so yeah. so there was this article when did it come out around uh it, this was probably like january february that we were having the conversation and what was the like what context did it arise in i, I don't know suddenly everybody was reading and talking about this uh article or story that came out about um inner monologues yes and, okay. and so the big realization was like not every like people have think to diff, there are different degrees to how verbal someone's thought process is. Mm -hmm. okay. And so some people kind of constantly have this narration playing to themselves. Um, okay. And then other people were coming out and saying, like, I don't have that whatsoever. Like, I think more visually or, um, you yeah. know, and we had this conversation with like us and three other people and mm -hmm. I was like well obviously it's non-linguistic and everyone in the room looked at me like I was an alien and they were like what you don't have an inner monologue and I was like no you do you just sit there and think of words and like my friends were like yeah and I thought that was so <laughs> strange to just like be sitting alone in your bed and there's just like talking happening like that sounds really anxiety inducing well, I, <laughs> it is sometimes no but um, I'm thinking of what do we mean by that? So I don't think you need to be asking questions and answering questions in your head, even though sometimes you do that with these inner things that are going on. But I'm saying that whenever you're processing things, you're processing things through concepts that are linguistic. You, I don't think it's possible for you to do otherwise, honestly. I've never done anything otherwise. And again, even with music or art, I think that there is the necessity at a certain point to define these things through words, more or less explicitly. Just the same way in which we were saying before, maybe uh, when I don't translate into English anymore, it's not that I'm not doing this anymore. It's happened so fast that you don't realize it, but it's still happening. If you are painting, a, I don't know, a landscape, you are putting in there elements of the landscape that you're defining linguistically, not just visually, because otherwise, otherwise you're just 
up the perfect impressionist. I don't know what else <laughs> so, to call so it, right? that saying, uh, putting into words, you would think is just nonsensical because it's always already put into words. It's not like you have the experience and then need to put it into words because it's already verbalized as it happens. Is that what you're saying? Well, not verbalized, I'm but linguized. About, yeah. So if you're talking about what's happening in your head, of course. If we're talking about what's happening outside, that's different. You put it into words. And you transform it inside here eventually. So, like from the from the outside in, you need words to decode, and inside you need words to decode. So, okay, so it's always there. So, what I was thinking, I, a moment. I was thinking specifically of aesthetic experience. To go back to that okay. uh, conversation mm -hmm. we had a few months ago now, I guess. So there would be no. So let's say you watched a, a movie, right, and mm -hmm. it, it left this impression on you. Or let's even forget about a movie. Let's make it easier. Think about an instrumental piece of music. Okay. Is what you're saying that when you experience the music, it's not like you have the experience of the music and then you need to put it into language. What you're saying is you already have to have the language in order for the music to happen internally? No. Okay. So that's what I no, thought you were saying. That's different. That is different when it comes to this aesthetic experience is different and I think that that's what makes it different than everything else, right? But the moment you're rationalizing that aesthetic experience, if you're starting to find out why you like it or if you want to study it or whatever it is, that's the moment where language needs to be there. Otherwise, you're incapable of doing these things. Mm. So then there are things that you feel, right? And that's on a different level. And those are the things that you need to put into words if you want. I don't know if it makes any sense. Okay, so so it's more so like the ra like the rationalizing and making sense of things is necessarily linguistic, but uh, just like not necessarily all experience would be linguistic? I would, yeah. Wait, that's, okay. that's, that's my that's, position. Yeah, that's <laughs> less extreme than what you said before. Yeah, because you, whenever you said thought, I was taking that to include uh, like qualitative experiences, which is why I'm like, wait, what? When you like hear music, that's not linguize. Uh. Again, <laughs> I'm thinking of two directions here. Mm -hmm. From the outside in, literally, that's one thing, right? Mm -hmm. And you need language. In my opinion, the only way in which you can make sense of things is through words, to put it this way, to make it simple, through language, right? And this is true also of the movie that you're watching or of the music that you're, that you're hearing to make sense of it. That doesn't mean that the music cannot give you a specific sensation that's nonverbal. That's a different story. Okay, because that's, I think, what I'm focusing more on. Okay, well, instead, what happens in here, whenever you're thinking, that's all verbal. Any, mm. I would say that the conscious aspect of it, it's always verbal. The unconscious, the things that it's that you cannot really grasp, so to speak, right? Yeah, that's nonverbal. I I think I think I am agreeing with what you're saying, uh, and even when you use that term, like to make sense is mm -hmm. linguistic. This this seems to be uh, kind of like another function in addition to communicating, right? And then a uh, necessary yes. function before you can communicate. Um, language is our way of ordering and figuring the world it's like this this absolutely these symbols and metaphors that we use to to organize and categorize our experiences yeah I, i'm 
I'm starting to see like where I get off the train and I think it's maybe smaller than okay. what we thought it was merely be- agree with me. Well, no, but I'm still not you. So, <laughs> and I think it ultimately comes down to like everything else, like the definitions of words, because when, so I agree that when you experience something and it's not fully understood, that is pre-linguistic. But then when you mm-hmm. make sense of it, as you and Claire were saying, when you have rational thoughts about it, you need to have language because that's ordering, right? Yeah. The difference is I'm using the word thought to apply to both that rational and that pre-rational, whereas you okay. are only using it to apply to the rational. That's the difference. Okay. I guess so. Yeah, it's possible. And, uh, and I think that that's, I mean, if psychoanalysis has taught us something that's exactly that. That when you finally make sense of things out of this thing that you don't really understand and you put it into words through therapy, that's when you solve the issue, Mm -hmm. right? So you're making sense of things. You're understanding things only when you're verbalizing because otherwise you have all these feelings, all this, uh, Freud would say, hysteria going on and all this kind of stuff, right? And they're, they're happening because you're now making sense of them because you're not verbalizing them. And verbalizing is the thing that makes it, you know, that makes it go away, so to speak. And uh, and I will, again, uh, to go a little bit further with this, even because of that, because of the fact that language, which is this intersubjective thing, uh, because this is what it is, we have said, and we all have agreed on this, if this intersubjective thing is what makes us who we are, who makes us what makes us understand things, what makes us decode things. Maybe we had to resign ourselves to the fact that partially we are not just something that's in here, but something that comes from outside too. We are made by also other people, so to speak, but other people ideas, other people words. I don't know if this makes sense again. Yeah, I think what you're saying is is like there's like a pole, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and you need to have both ends to it. And you're saying, well, this is the conversation we always have, right? It's like that the <laughs> self is defined at least in part by relations to others. And mm-hmm. a stronger way of saying that would be to say that the relation to others, uh, whether it be in written linguistics, maybe primarily, then reflects back on the self and helps make it what it is. I think the, there's no disagreement there. Right. So mm-hmm. language is this intersubjective thing that, like other intersubjective things, reciprocally, reciprocally defines the internal and the external. It defines everything that's involved there. Yeah. He doesn't even right. want to say internal. I know. Is that why you no. <laughs> He thinks it's you? a dirty word. You sound like Skinner. <laughs> nope. No, I know it might sound that way, but uh, you know that it's not the I case. Know, I, know. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember uh, first, it was actually when I first read Death of the Author as an undergrad. Um, and I had this great professor who we were kind of tracing how conceptions of the self were so different in an oral culture. And then once we started, once we got the printing press writing. and started writing stuff down and suddenly we wanted to know what individual wrote that thing and that became really important yeah. to us and copyright and all this stuff. Um, and how now with the internet, there's like largely this shift 
where we should maybe rethink that uh, because authorship <laughs> is not so clear cut and ideas are so collaborative. And how do you, we, we now, I think, know that creativity doesn't just like spring out of nowhere, right? It's based on all these things you've been exposed to and other people's words and references and all of this. Um, so I think, yeah, language is a ripe ripe area to think about this individual versus mm. social distinction. And and I'm wondering what so what was your what were your thoughts about uh, this this idea of of the other idea? I am I'm curious now mentioning death of you know the death of the other what what's your as a rhetorician, right? Cuz that that is, you know, I think by um by training, you should be particularly attached to this idea that there is an author, that this, it's important, right? The way I deliver something yeah. versus the way another person delivers something. Maybe. Delivers maybe. Something. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say no to that. But uh, so rhetoric, I, I think, is really difficult to define. Um, but one thing that I feel pretty confident saying it is, is that it, it necessarily looks at things contextually, so it's about a rhetorical situation. Um, so mm. in that sense, I would say maybe I'm less preoccupied with the individual speaker or author. Okay. I don't know if I stand by that, but because when, <laughs> when I, whenever I explain rhetoric, I always say, you know, it's looking at the utterance in context. So yes, who's delivering it and their motives and their backgrounds and whatever they're bringing to it, but also, um, the audience that they're delivering it to, the genre that they're operating within, the place and time that it's operating within. Um, so yeah, I would say I would say my understanding and use of rhetoric is less focused on an isolated individual Which, and necessarily focused on a context. And so to clarify, it's like you could have a component that focuses on the individual without then saying, oh, the individual is exhaustive of the situation, right? That your analysis includes the individual isn't synonymous with saying, oh, but it doesn't include anyone besides the individual. Right. I think that's what you're saying, right? Right, yeah. I'm just saying that because I, I feel like a lot of the time when anyone has these discussions, it usually falls into this kind of dichotomy, right? Where it's like yep. you're either talking about an isolated individual or some collective entity. And it's like, well, maybe it's something in between those and, and neither of those extremes. Yeah, and I guess we, we have explored this during the aesthetics, uh, at least partially during the aesthetics episode, saying, uh, because again, the next the logical question will be like, can we have a rhetorical uh, facticity or uh, happenings, events, without a specific order? And the answer probably is not, right? Well, somebody, yeah, there has to be someone or s there has to be someone or something behind the utterance because I think even if going back to like the computer or the Chinese room or whatever even mm -hmm. if uh something was generated by a robot or whatever uh I think maybe you could still look at how it was received and the effect that it had on the people who read or saw or heard it um I don't know there is the need there's the need of the creative act. There needs to be the creator there, so to speak. Is that what it we're saying? It sounds a lot like the the aesthetic uh, transmission that we were talking about, where it's like you need to have yeah. the efficient cause, i.e. the creator, 
and then you need to have the work, which in this case is like the speech act or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And then you need to have Mm -hmm. the audience. However, here's an interesting thing because in the aesthetics episode, we were having this conversation about the extent to which the author herself or the artist herself can count as an audience. And Mm -hmm. that at least seemed possible, even if we didn't want to get too much into that. I'm wondering if that can't be the case in rhetoric. So in other words, I make a piece of music, no one hears it, it's still art, because I'm both the artist and the experiencer. Now, can there be, in the same way, uh, an equality between the speaker and the audience? Or do you need an audience that's apart from the speaker? Uh, I'm inclined to say it's probably different than art in Mm -hmm. that that way, because um, I think a lot of times you in rhetoric, you'll look at like how successful an utterance was and there, Oh, sorry. Um, you look at like how successful an utterance was. Uh, and so, I mean, you could say like one person produced something with a particular goal that was only related to themselves. Maybe, but I certainly don't think that's the, usually the purpose or what you're looking at in those cases. I think that I tend to agree with Claire on this because I, there is a pragmatic aspect to, to the rhetorical event yeah. that, that cannot be taken away. Otherwise, it's not a rhetorical event. Well, I have a right. weird question. Yeah. Like, if we admit that something like internal monologue exists, mm. does that have a rhetorical function or context? I, I think we could plug a lot of the vocabulary in, right? Like you could say, I'm even thinking of the obvious one would be like a diary entry or something, right? Like mm-hmm. my, my mm-hmm. therapist told me that I should write through my problems as a way of, and so that's, that has a, a goal. Um, you, it could be successful at achieving that goal. You have choices of how to, how to operate as the writer or as the speaker in that situation. Um, so we can definitely use the language, but I, cause I feel like it's kind of a stretch. I'm, I I'm wondering. I think it's, I see this weird it's connection. A yeah. Because like, okay, if if the self is quote unquote talking to itself, like to use language that may not be entirely fitting, you could probably learn a lot about a person if you know how they conceptualize and how they talk to themselves. And I'm wondering if the the rhetoric. Uh, rhetoric rhetorical analysis of internal monologue is just introspection because Mm. and if it is then it seems like there's an overlap with psychology to the extent that it's like oh can you diagnose uh some kind of pathologies by determining how someone treats themselves like how someone thinks about do they hate themselves or do they have these assumptions about themselves while they're talking do they have this grandiosity and yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was a weird, that was a weird connection. I, and again, Claire, you're the expert here, so uh, I'll defer to you. But my opinion is that these two things, while both of them are linguistics, uh, linguistic events, one of them is a rhetorical event, another one is a different kind of event. I think that both of them are based in language, obviously, but they are dramatically different. I, when I think of rhetoric, I think of politics. Mm immediately and i think of not just not the rhetorical artifice that they have but literally rhetoric is politics um and i think that that's impossible you cannot you cannot be political with yourself yeah that doesn't work you need a counterpart 
You need an antagonist. If those things are not there, there's no politics. So you need discourse. You if, need logos. I, yes, and if you don't have an antagonist, I don't think, and again, Claire, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you can have a rhetorical event if there is no antagonistic part, so to speak. There needs to be something that you're going against, so to speak. Yeah, uh, and that's that's why I was saying, usually I'll talk about that in terms of the goal, right? And your mm -hmm. ways of achieving. And I mean, don't defer to me, but I'm even like, Aristotle would say no, right? He's like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. Talking to yourself. Like, yeah, this is, this was about, I'm thinking, <laughs> this was about the, I'm thinking exactly about right, him. The public square and you have to either mm -hmm. defend yourself in court or you have to make a political speech or it's a holiday and you have to address the, you know, the city. Um, yeah, that was, that was rhetoric, right? And so it's used in other ways now, right? You could look at mm -hmm. the, you know, gendered rhetoric and workplace and interpersonal and all of these things. Um, but ultimately, it, it is social, it is political, at least in the traditional sense, right? Yeah, I, I don't see, I don't think that the internal monologue, again, still linguistic, yeah. not necessarily uh, rhetorical. Um, and I wonder, again, the exercise that we can try to, to make, it's like, what is what do they have in common these two things right that is just the use of words there must be something more than that though, yeah because right? i was thinking the goal orientedness at least for something like cbt right it's like okay i'm trying to make this change in my thinking pattern so i speak to myself in this way or try to stop myself from having these thoughts but uh i'm wondering if we could bracket this for now and have a more explicit conversation of how how language uh functions publicly in the next episode Oh, sounds good to me. All right. See you later. See ya.